Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. It's the week ending May the 4th, 2018. Mark, it's May already. Gee, the year is flying past. And um, don't know about you, Mark, but I've had a bit of an interesting week this week. Um, I know you don't know about this, but I just today, actually, today, this morning, Annie and I, my wife, we went to a photography exhibition in Melbourne here at the Heidi Museum. And that was to the see. Diane Arbus, who is a famous American photographer, and they had some amazing prints from her. So um, I was very inspired, Mark. I wanted to wow. get out and take some photos there. And she has some classic, classic images, and I'll put a link to it in our show notes, Mark, um, of some iconic images of the 20th, 20th century or the 21st century. Um, I think the period when she was most famous for taking a photo so it's 1940s to 19, late 1960s I think Mark um, and uh, she liked to take photos of of odd people and um, circus acts and, and down and out people and, and poor people and um, a lot of the photos are very tragic but um, human, um, humanistic sort of photos there and I found them incredibly enthralling and to see them up in person, um, these these prints um, in the gallery, they were, they were amazing. So, yeah, that's what I did this morning, Mark. So it, it really got me inspired to get out there and try and take some photos because I haven't been out there for for a while, Mark, to take any photos. So that was my fun thing of the week. What have you been up to apart from vet work? Have you done anything, been out there taking photos? I have, I have. Seen any Basketball matches, anything like that? <laughs> no, no basketball matches at this stage of the year. Been, I've been I'm watching a couple of the NBA finals games on TV, but my most exciting thing was to um, head out to uh, the, the wonderful Hexham Swamp, one of the, my favourite lurks. Um, I got out relatively early yesterday, about 5.30, and... Um, and uh, was trying to fire off some photographs, but in the usual way of these things, um, it was just a comedy of errors, Brendan. It was disheartening, and so I'm inspired by your visit to uh, look at um, Diane Arbus's work because um, I had the ISO wrong and I was blowing out the whites, and um, and uh, and I found I'm getting much better at finding the birds on the swamp, and uh, got to see some very special ones, but um, I wasn't able to turn that. Uh, um, ability to find the birds into good images. So that was yes. a little bit depressing. Yes. Um, well, I mentioned about my episode in in Warrnambool a week or so ago where I struggled to for inspiration and to take any good photos. But as you mentioned, you've got to get out there and take some pics in order to have the good days as well as the bad days, Mark. So, yeah. And you it's did a- send me a couple of photos. You um, And for, for, for our regular listeners um, who visit our website, vetgurus.com, you will see the cover photo for last week's episode about avian anesthesia. Was one of your photos, Mark? I think it was the kestrel, wasn't it, Brendan? That uh, beautiful man, That's King right. Kestrel, sitting on the fence and... Um, yeah, that uh, that was a, a pretty lucky shot. A uh, uh, yeah, hunting bird that um, let me approach really closely, and I managed to get a, a decent shot. And that one, um, I, I think I'm just graduating, Brendan, from just catching images of the birds to contemplating the background and trying to um, create a more artistic vision. I did when I was out on the swamp. I did. This will. I, I know this will excite everyone who's listening. I did manage to see um, an Australian busted, an uh, Australian bittern. I apologise, an Australian bittern, um, ah. and um, these are critically threatened wetland birds. They're gigantic things. They're about seventy-five centimetres tall, and um, and they are um, they are fairly secretive. They generally just live amongst the reeds, but this one foolishly caught itself just out in the water hunting they live almost exclusively on frogs they travel quite vast distances and yeah it was a 
blast to see one of those. But um, unfortunately, the um, the photographs look like I've uh, because the autofocus focuses on the reeds in the foreground, and it looks like yeah. I've got a stump in the background. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, it reminds me of my visit to Wanamba, which is in. Um, Western Victoria, I went to Tower Hill Conservation Reserve, and I, I know we spoke about yes. this off off air last um, last week. And um, I took uh, a couple of photos there, and, and one of them was the, the graphics, the boards explaining from the Parks Victoria about what species you see in the park, and it was talking about the emus and other birds and that. And then then below that, they had another board stuck on um, exactly on the same um, on the same um, board um, um, mentioned into everybody that it is duck hunting season and that hunting is allowed in Tower Hill in the morning for half an hour before sunrise until 9am 9 and in the evening from 5pm until half an hour after sunset. So it was quite ironic, I think, that they were uh, to, in, in, in the text above that it was talking about how important the species were there and it had mention of the hide you could sit in to take photographs of a bird and then it had the um, hours for duck hunting in the same research. So, what's that all about, Mark? I'm getting angry already. I know we start off like this, don't we? Where are we going to go? Yes. So, yes. So, where are we going to go? Well, we're going to talk about something which warms our heart, Mark, and that is we have a new subscriber um, to our podcast at patreon.com vetgurus. You can become a subscriber or a patron of our podcast and help pay for the costs of all our um, hosting and our um, equipment for recording the podcast. And I think you may know this person, our new subscriber or our, or our patron, Mark. Well, well, I do in fact know this person. Um, and, uh, and I was talking about um, uh, Renwick uh, in the most recent uh, podcast that we spoke. Well, that was I, the one that we talked about, Salmonella. Um, anyway, Renwick's been working his way through. Yeah, I don't think he's come to the Salmonella one. He might withdraw his his uh, sponsorship once he sees himself um, featured in one of these stories. Um, but yes, he's. Uh, I, I think um, I'm starting to get this feeling, Brendan. I'm really starting to get this feeling that the people who know me think I'm much. You know, I'm struggling financially because it seems to be all my friends who are chucking in the the. Um, the, uh, you must cast that um, or that appearance of um, you know casual wealth, money to throw away. No, I think I just have no friends, Mark. Um, I think that's what it is. So for those of you who don't know, Renwick is um, Mark's son. So hello and thank you, Renwick, for the um, generous donation you're providing every month. And I'm sure just don't turn around and ask Dad for the money, okay? That's the most important thing not to do. Um Thank you very much. So, yes, if anybody wants to support us, um, go to vetgurus.com and you will see the link to become a patron at patreon.com. And now quickly, before we go anywhere else, Brendan, I was just going to highlight that I've put a deadline in. We're, our competition has been running for, I think, four weeks now and yes. the huge number of entries that we've received. We, we're going to call it quits Next week, we're going to make a decision next week on who the winner is. So um, anyone who's uh, interested in sending in one of their stories, um, we already um, know the wonderful prize that uh, um, we're, we're awarding, the, the uh, um, textbook written by one of the leading um, herpeticulture veterinarians in the world. Um, and th that is, um, and that is who, Doctor Robert Johnson, <laughs> and his sidekick. Yes, I just happen to be a co-author of that book as well. Yes, so the the book will be shipped out to whoever wins the prize and for new subscribers or listeners um, all you need to do is send an email to us vetgurus at gmail.com and we um, and just tell us a little story a veterinary story whether you're a veterinary nurse technician or, or a veterinarian um, just tell us a little bit of a story of a, a fun or an interesting case you've seen recently and then you're in the you're in the, you're in the hat for the draw next week that Mark has put the um, deadline for so yeah I'm excited now, Mark. I'm excited to draw that. I think you'll have to um, you'll have to pull out the winner out of your hat. I think, Mark. Okay, sounds like a plan. I'm on to it. 
Good. Okay. So we let's. Uh, well, we've got some news stories. Let's jump into those, and I think we might have a review as well before we get into our main topic for this week. And Mark, if you're ready, if you could take the first news story, and that is a bird story um, for you, of course. I know that will come as a complete surprise um, to everyone, but um, I do. I really love several words in this um, this article. Um, and I probably will mispronounce one of them, but chuparosas um, is the word that really, la chuparosa, sounds beautiful. Um, the story is about um, the strange world of dried hummingbirds um, and their role in love charm trafficking. Um, so the, the um, story written by, uh, I can't find out, uh, who wrote the took the photographs. It's a Nat Geo story, and um, yes. essentially it uh, it highlights the the, um, the 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 black market um, in um, charms that involve. In this particular instance, it goes into some detail about the role that dried, dead hummingbirds play in a particularly Hispanic. Um, uh, I suppose uh, mythology. Um, the the uh, it's a, a belief amongst people from Mexico that um, that uh, these beautiful birds um, convey some um, love potion um, magic, um, and so there is uh, a um, not overwhelming but significant market in their dead remains. Um, and it's just a uh, tip of the iceberg thing that, um, that the belief that some of these animals have supernatural powers that can affect um, humans um, fosters a, 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 a subculture, a black market. Um, the internet facilitates it. Um, uh, you know, by the, behind the counter at um, markets or... Um, so-called spiritual shops called botanicas. Um, but the beginning of the story starts with a, the beginning of the article starts with a, um, a great detailed story of uh, an online witch, a witch, Brendan. Um, yes. Puts together online, but under the cameras, the YouTube cameras, um, she puts together a, uh, um, a little, um, well, I suppose it's a brew. She, um, has a honey jar, she um, uh, gets photographs of the potential two would-be lovers. She has a piece of paper with their names written on it three times. She has a small um, uh, glass jar, the honey jar, and, and a dead hummingbird. She rolls the tiny bird inside the photographs and, and wraps the cigar-shaped bundle in hot pink yarn and then only showing her lower body and arms. She shields her identity from the camera, but she stuffs this tiny cigar-shaped sarcophagus into, um, well, she wraps it in flat, tacky fly paper and dips it in cinnamon spice. It's, it's almost getting to the point where it sounds worthy of eating. She spritzes it with perfumes and oils um, that have particular um, pheromonic um, power according to her story and um, then she finally she puts it all in the jar she finally fills it with a thick pour of golden honey and a sprinkle of rose petals and there you go you, you, you know that love potion is going to ensure the relationship um, and I think the sad thing is Matt the prices that these people are, are, are selling and and, and the people are willing to buy for these um, dead hummingbirds that are sort of dipped in various lotions and potions for a supposed, um, you know, love potion. And I think uh, the article mentions up to from 50 to $500 or so. It's, uh, um, it's scary. No wonder people are breeding them and potentially um, 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 having a little market for, for the use of these. I mean, it must have been a Nat Geo article, the other thing, which is sad, but... Um, 
bittersweet is that the photographs of um, these hummingbirds in it are amazing, aren't they? Um, um, all these little dead hummingbirds wrapped in. And I can't remember whether ones that they've got further on in the article, Mark, are they ones of these ones that are, are, are these love charm ones or are they just ones from museum pieces? No, no, I think they're the the, um, the ones that are on this woman's site, those um, photographs. They look like um, museum ones, but um, my understanding is they're, they're uh, the sorts of ones that um, that have been um, yeah up for sale, um, and, and of course those hummingbirds are, that, that are for sale are almost certainly not captive bred. They're almost certainly trapped from the wild, and they're of course yes. protected by um, US law as well as um, um, CITES conventions, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, uh, expressly. Prohibits international trade in all hummingbird species, and these birds are migratory. Um, kind of a little, I it wasn't until I went over to America and saw them um, that I realised how far they travel. But um, but yeah, so they do. Many of them cross um, over into Mexico, and um, some of them even now are making with global warming their home in Canada, um, and so they travel quite a long way, and um, and so. Uh, it's not just what happens in one country that can affect them. Um, and a lot of them are becoming, um, of course, as we so regularly mention about so many species, they're um, endangered. Um, and this is just extra pressure on them. Yes, I don't know what to say about that much. It's sad, isn't it? But it's not the only animal that's sort of used in this sort of way. Um, maybe not. Not too many of them are used as love, love potions like this, but, um, yeah, it's not nice to hear about those sort of stories. I'm, I'm going to get on to a more, uh, more upbeat sort of story, Mark, but I don't know whether it works very well, this particular um, um, story here. And this is about an army in China, Mark, um, in the chicken army. Have you heard about the chicken army in China, Mark? It's about um, officials in the country's northwest region of China have handed out over 2,200 chickens to local herdsmen in the hope of curbing what they expect to be a bad year for locust swarms. So they are using these chickens, apparently, um, who are excellent natural predators of locusts. Um, so one chicken, according to the veterinary bureau that spoke to the china news service one chicken can catch over 600 locusts a day and can cover half a hectare of grassland there has been a decline in locust population in several counties where the measure has been adopted um so there you go mark so um because they were predicting higher than normal incidents of locust swarms for the northern portion of china mostly owing to winter warmer temperatures so and in the past, they've been using um, traditional efforts of, of or, uh, methods of including pesticides to control the locusts now. And then they think this method of getting the chooks out there, Mark, um, to eat the um, locusts may um, be a useful way of trying to reduce those, lo those locusts. So that's the chicken army in China, Mark. So although my... my um, I do think that um, it probably isn't going to be super effective, but it's a it is a good news story, I suppose, um, compared with our little love potion story. Mark, um, any comments on the chicken army? I was going to say, Brendan, that I only hope you you will have um, perused most of those stories about biological controls where one species has been introduced to um, to control another, and so I just hope that um, there's not. Uh, you know, a feral chicken population set up in that northwest province um, that replaces the um, the locusts. And um, and uh, I suppose the only good thing is that um, the chickens are not cane toads, um, and they they will be um, no doubt yeah. of some good use at the end of their useful, uh, um, you know, function the, the end of their function as a uh, um, a biological control. Yes. Um your second news story is about another dead animal, isn't it? On Twitter, a bit of macabre, um, macabre um, um, topics today. Yeah, so um, tell me about this one. Well, this is the Friday essay on the trail of the London thylacines, and I've been really interested 
I was mentioning just then I've been uh, I'm a bit of a uh, Twitter, um, tw- a bit of a tweeter. Follow a number of people on Twitter. I don't actually tweet that much myself, but um, particularly one Jack Ashby um, uh, is an excellent science communicator, worker in museums, and just gotten a new job. And um, he's, uh, I just love to read his tweets about the goings on inside. Um, the museums, and he has been involved in looking at some of these. Um, but this article in particular talks about um, uh, a team of Australians, particularly from Tasmania, who uh, um, travelled to uh, London to, to just, I suppose, um, become familiar with the uh, last resting places of many of the, the uh, last Tasmanian tigers, the thylacines that were um, held in captivity at the time, um, at the species decline, Tasmania was a, um, uh, a territory of you know a British colony, and so these animals, as they were collected, um, went to British museums and um, and uh, you know the Natural History Museum is a premier repository of um, the the. Uh, the specimens, science specimens collected around the world. And, of course, they have a, um, a, a very significant collection of, um, of uh, thylacines. In fact, this article points out that um, there was something like 167 um, Tasmanian tigers residing in the museums in the UK alone. Um, so um, that's a significant number of um, scientific um, uh, history um, scientific, uh, uh, with considerable scientific value yet to be completely um, drawn out. Um, but also it's a bit of a cultural thing too, I think, is the, the take-home message of this um, this article that, um, that the absolute loss, the you know, the, the extinction of a species and particularly the extinction of a species um, uh, from the late 1800s to the first days of the 20th century, you know, something that, um, that uh, is within living memory um, and something that was expressly planned, that, um, that you know, this was a, a, not just an accidental thing, there's something that happened as a consequence of an inadvertent consequence of another action. This was conceived as uh, an extermination. There were societies dedicated to the extermination of the uh, thylacine as graziers felt it was, a, um, you know, a, a, just a troublesome animal. And, and so I think there, there's a sense of um, responsibility, of loss, of grief amongst uh, scientists who are so close um, to seeing these, you know, to the time when these animals were alive and knowing that they are, uh, and through the action of humans, not unlike us, um, uh, they were exterminated. I think that uh, makes it a particularly resonant, uh, this, this sentence, um, uh, the extinction of the thylacine is particularly resonant because it was annihilated through human actions. Its death was sanctioned by government policy and the animal was deliberately and systemically destroyed. So, um, yeah, I think um, it's a... a I know I'm just you know introducing articles that are a little bit depressing, but um, but the take home the other thing I wanted to mention about this article was the um, I I have serious misgivings about this de-extinction program process. I know that um, that some of the in Melbourne um, recently the the genome of the um, thylacine was um, the complete genome was sequenced, and so we now have. Um, information that might inform a process of um, trying to bring the animals back to life, but I don't know. It's a, it's a. a I certainly would, you know, love to see something. I would love to. Every time I see an unusual animal, it's a, it's you know, a genuine pleasure. But um, I, I don't know. I think once we make something extinct, the, the sort of false hope that's given by these de-extinction programs. I don't like it, Brendan. I think the, uh, the, the that whole thing blinds us to the finality of extinction, and um, and I think you know we should grieve uh, 
and we should care about how these things happen and we should make sure that it doesn't happen to other species. Yes, it's extinct, so it's gone, and um, the chances of it coming back, at least with our current technology, is pretty well zero, isn't it? And if we could bring them back, should we bring them back is always the question, isn't it, Mark? Um, so, yes, the last news story is another not feel good story, is it, Mark? Well, I suppose it is a good oh, feel, feel good story, isn't I know, it, Mark? I think um, it. It's about another death, but um, the good news is it's um, about the world's oldest spider has just died at the age of 43 in Western Australia. So I find this quite interesting for a number of number of reasons, Mark. The obvious one is um, it shows the longevity of some of these species um, and that we now know that the older spider um, that we that's been recorded has um, lived to forty three. Um, the other interesting thing is it wasn't a spider in captivity, was it, Mark? It was a it was a trapdoor spider which had a name of number sixteen, um, which died at the ripe old age of forty three during a long term population study in Western Australia's central wheat belt and far outlived her previous rival for the longest-lived spider, which was a 28-year-old Mexican tarantula. And um, it was, let's have a look, the research project was started by renowned University of Western Australia biologist and spider specialist Barbara York Main in 1974. And number 16, which was this particular spider, was discovered in Professor Main's original survey in that year. And through Barbara's detailed research, the article goes on to say, we were able to determine that the extensive lifespan of the trapdoor spider is due to their life history traits, including how they live in uncleared native bush, bushland, their sedentary nature and their low metabolisms. Um, and it goes on to say, Professor Main's research has shown that the male trapdoor spider leaves his burrow at maturity around seven to nine years of age to wander in search of a mate after which he dies. So the female stays put, raising hatchlings inside the protection of a burrow, which she temporarily seals up with a mud plug, and she lives it on in the same burrow mark for the duration of her life. So it's pretty amazing, isn't it? 43 years. And wouldn't it be great to be that researcher who studied, who's had the same research project um, for that length of time and you've followed those um, animals or, or insects or, 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 or whatever for that um, length of time? Because most studies um, only go for several months, don't they, Mark? Not several years, let alone decades. And uh, the last thing that it mentions in that article at the end is, some things that happened in 1974, which is when they first discovered um, number 16. So I suppose the other thought I had with this particular article is that potentially we know that it is at least 43 years of age, isn't it? Um, so who knows how old that spider was when it was first um, marked or tagged or, or whatever method they used to to um, um, note that that was um, number 16. Maybe they put a number 16 on, um, on its back. Or they, um, and how do how do they ID them these days? I expect they'd do it by um, taking photos, wouldn't they, Mark? But um, painting things onto a spider probably wouldn't help much because once it, it um, gets rid of that exoskeleton, you're not going to have that mark in there again. But I mentioned some of the things that happened in 1974, which was when they first started recording this um, spider, and that included um, it was when Richard Nixon resigned as U.S. president, and Muhammad Ali um, was still fighting and Stephen King published his debut novel, Carrie. So there we go. Um, the world's oldest spider has died at the age of 43, Mark. So I think that's our last news story for this week. Um, was there any other comments you had about our news stories, Mark? No, I just I, you highlighted with the, um, the our wonderful spider story that, uh, that it just does tell us that, um, you know, we get to see some, particularly some of the... the um, tropical uh, spiders from Australia, the giant spiders from Australia, sometimes called singing spiders or um, bird-eating spiders. They're uh, um, species that uh, are, are intermittently on the, you know, in pet stores and whatever, and, um, and you know, they are spiders that do live um, a very long time, like our 23-year-old tarantula. I don't know that they would get to the 
43 years that um, that uh, number 16 did. But um, there you go. It, it does. They're, they're, even spiders are not their they're pets for life if you take those responsibilities on. Yeah, so I'm trying to remember when the last spider consultation um, I did at my clinic, and I have done a few over the years, but it has, I must admit, it has been several years since I have done a, an actual pet spider consultations. I still do some work for Melbourne Museum and they have a big invertebrate collection and um, spider collection and um, lots of creepy crawlies there. So, but that's more a, a museum or, or, or a um, wildlife sort of collection there. Have you um, seen many pet spiders, Mark? We do get to see a, a few pet spiders like you. It's probably been um, two or three years since we saw our last one, but um, one of our, uh, one of, you know, the answer when people find out that we're a practice that deal with unusual pets, the the spider who came in, a female spider of, she was about nine years old at the time, and um, of course she'd had a fall and burst her abdomen, and um, we anaesthetised her and and uh, sewed her belly back up, reinflated her, and put some tissue cement on there, and um, treated her with antibiotics, and uh, and um, and saved her life. So that's often the answer to the uh, the most unusual yes. patient that we've had. Yes, we've um, had sort of similar things with them and all ones where the leg, um, they've had injuries to, to their legs and we've had to sort of cauterise those legs with a bit of glue um, or or potentially pull off that um, limb um, so it sort of self-seals sometimes at the, at the origin of where you've um, pulled it off. So they're quite fascinating creatures to deal with, aren't they, Mark? Um, I think we have, um, I, we didn't mention before, the um, podcast with our pre-podcast um, chat about a review, um, and I can't remember whether we've reviewed this particular textbook before or Mark. Did you see the note I, I put did, down? I, about don't, this I, text? I didn't think we had, Brendan, to be honest with you. Well, in that case, I'm going to review it right now, Mark, and that is Clinical Anatomy and Physiology of Exotic Species by Barbara O'Malley, and this is a fantastic book. So for those of you who have an interest in unusual pets or exotic pets, um, it is a, a wonderful book, and it goes through not just um, the anatomy of, 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 of species, like birds and reptiles and amphibians and, and ferrets and small mammals and other commonly kept um, um, mammals. It also has um, basic information um, or detailed information in some cases of the physiology of these species as well. But the thing I love most about this particular book is how it is set out, Mark, and I think you have this text at your your practice as well. I just love the line drawings in there and the little um, 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 boxes of, 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 of interest notes, um, little tips and tricks that it has in there. So it, it's fantastic when when I'm thinking, gee, what was that particular bone in a bird that um, is sitting in um, um, one particular area of the bird? I look up the anatomy of it in this book. Um, or how do I access, what does, or I have somebody who says to me, phones up and says, what does the cloacal structure of the, uh, a reptile um, look like? And I'll, I'll point them towards this textbook and say, look, this is the sort of book you should get. Or how do I catheterise a guinea pig, um, a guinea pig's bladder? Um, and this is the book I'd always reach for first for, for doing those sort of procedures, Mark, because the anatomical diagrams and the descriptions of it are fantastic. I love this book, Mark. I love this book and I give it a very solid I won't give it a mark 10 out of 10 Australian um, basketball mark, but I will give it a mark of 9.6 out of 10 because I think this is, is an essential textbook for veterinarians and veterinary nurses or technicians who have an interest in unusual and exotic pets. And it's a definitely an essential textbook for those vets who want to do further studies, uh, master's degrees, or sit for their further examinations in unusual pets. I think it should be a mandatory text on the curriculum if you want to end up um, sitting for those further further um, studies like the membership in the um, Australian College of Veterinary Scientists in Unusual Pets, Mark. Brendan, I've always um, maintained that um, I wish I'd spent more time when I was at university paying attention to the anatomy lectures because every single day I've got to go and review the anatomy of something really important that 
I probably should already have known. Um, and this, as you said, this textbook uh, makes that a little bit easier because of those um, uh, the, the very clear diagrams, the um, the reference to radiographs, and uh, and being a bit of a, a visual learner and understanding things through looking at the pictures, as it were. Um, yeah, I agree with you. This is an excellent textbook. And it's, I think it's available just on the regular regular context and places like Amazon.com, but um, I, I will put a link to it in our in our show notes, Mark, for, for those who want to have a bit of a look at it. And, yeah, I strongly um, recommend it as a, as a fantastic textbook for unusual and exotic pets, and it will get you out of sticky situations, Mark, when you have one of these animals um, anaesthetised or you're about to examine one and you, you're forgetting about the, the anatomy or or the basic physiology of them. So there we go. So that's our review for this week, Clinical Anatomy and Physiology of Exotic Species, and it's an Elsevier Saunders textbook. Um, so let's jump to our main topic, Mark. So we're getting back to general practice here, aren't we? We're, we're going to talk about um, dental disease in our little canine friends, dental disease in dogs. So I think Mark and I both thought it was a excellent topic because we could probably talk for much longer than the half an hour we have on this topic. So briefly, what we're going to cover is um, um, what how we how we approach this task with with dealing with the clients when we have a pet a, a dog in front of us that have obvious dental disease, and how we approach the client in um, explaining to them the reasons why we need to do a dental on this dog. Um, then we'll talk about the actual process of doing the dental, and and I think we'll compare the way we do our dental dental um, treatments in our, in our canines in our respective clinics and so um, maybe chat about the equipment that we use, Mark, as well and um, things that you find frustrating or not frustrating with doing dog dentals and then what works and what doesn't work and also maybe talk about the prevention aspects of it. You know, what do you tell the clients after they pick up their dog that's had a dental and it's got that beautiful shiny um, grin on it and white teeth when it goes out the door. Um, what do you tell them about trying to prevent the dental disease developing again in their pet canine at home? And Mark, I have I must admit, I, I must confess here, I do have a vested interest in this subject because I, as you know, have two greyhounds at home and they have greyhound teeth and you know what greyhound teeth are like, they're shocking. So I'm regularly having to knock out, um, anaesthetise my, my greyhounds and, and clean their teeth because um, no matter what I do um, or what sort of preventative aspects I try and do, we're trying to get them to to chew more and to keep those teeth clean, they um, end up with the severe gingivitis and, and the dental disease. So I do need to um, um, repeatedly, probably every six months or so, anaesthetise them to do to do a dental on them. So so that's the intro there, Mark. So maybe if you um, go into the first um, aspect of that, and that is talking to the clients and getting the message across to the clients about how um, to book the procedure. And not not... I was going to say convince the clients to book the procedure and I don't think it's a matter of – sometimes it is convincing them, isn't it? I think it's more convincing the client that, hey, this dog has sore, a sore mouth. Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I, oftentimes the clients, particularly with um, dogs that have fairly significant dental disease, the clients will be aware that there's um, signs halitosis or um, uh, they may have even had a look inside their – their dog's mouths themselves and be aware that um, things don't just look right. Um, and while greyhounds are certainly one of the common breeds that we get to see have significant dental disease, it's most commonly the, the um, little white fluffy dogs, the dogs with um, uh, some uh, degree of facial shortening. They might have some degree of malocclusion. Um, and so um, we're often starting with people being a little bit aware that it's likely to be a problem but it does end up being an issue that um that people sort of think of as more cosmetic you know the dog the dog has smelly breath and you know it still eats it still does all its normal things it's uh it's not a significant health issue in their mind it's more a bit of a nuisance and so i think um 
this is one of those situations that we depend on empathy. We depend on cultivating the client's empathy. We talk about how they would feel if they had a mouth like this and how they would, uh, um, how they would feel if there was infection running down the, the uh, periodontal ligament and reaching the apex of the tooth and causing problems. And, and then we usually, when we go through that process, we reach the point where the clients go, yes, but um, the dog's not showing any signs. I would be screaming if I had an infected mouth like that. I'd be not able to go to work. I'd be yelling at my partner. Um, but the dog is just fine, so it cannot be feeling the sort of pain that I would feel. Um, and we've got to convince people. I suppose the convincing part is um, to uh, convince them that dogs, like our exotic pets, uh, in certain circumstances will conceal or diminish their clinical signs to lessen the impact on their life, I suppose. They, they don't want um, people um, to realise that they've got problems in their mouth, so they play down those issues. They know that in a pack of dogs, if they were... Uh, whinging and whining and not eating as much as usual and, uh, and, uh, and not interacting with the mouths of other dogs, they'd soon be cut out of the pack. So they conceal that discomfort um, to lessen the likelihood that there's a problem. Um, and usually once we've gone through those sorts of features, we've encouraged the people to have empathy. We've em emphasised that the dogs have the same neurological pathways and can feel the same sorts of things in their mouth that we would if we had these things we can usually convince them that it's something that we have to fix up. Yes, I agree totally. And I think there's there's probably three things I generally tell my clients or, or discuss with my clients um, when I'm trying to trying to book these patients in for that dental. And, and um, these are all things that have been told to me over over the years by greater minds than me, um, um, veterinary veterinary dentists at conferences, etc. And, and one is the, the old adage of, of red gums equals pain. And, and I use that exact phrase to the, to the client and I say, hey, look at the gums of your dog. It's The gums are red um, and that red gums equal pain. So your dog's going to have a sore mouth. And I think people can relate to a whole bit about, you know, sore gums equals pain. Um, the second thing that I always tend to say these days is it's amazing and it harks back to what you were saying just just before mark is that a lot of these dogs you don't realize until you've done the dental that how sore they were and i say to the client look when you get your dog home um, the day or two after it's had the dental and it's over the anesthetic you'll be amazed at how much brighter and happier your dog is and um and i think you'll 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 almost certainly agree in that that a lot of these dogs are running around and 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 like puppies again, I'll say to the client, you know, that you'll be amazed at how happy your dog will be and you'll realise that, hey, it must have been pretty sore. I thought he was normal, um, but once you did the dental on him, he's just got so much more bounce in his step and he's such a much happier dog. So I always mention that to them. Um, and the third item, I've forgotten what the third one is, Mark. Um, it will get back to me, so we might just move on to move on to the next bit there. I've lost my mind again, Mark. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, it was on the tip of my tongue there, but I got stuck into the second bit. So um, what was the third bit? No, we'll keep going. So um, booking them in, I, I think the other thing I like to do then is give them a bit of a handout that, that shows them. And I know use those little dental, those plastic models um, of, of the mouth of a dog um, that shows a severe dental disease on one side and, and the normal teeth on the other side because I think like you, um, I'm fairly visual with all that sort of thing and I think clients can relate to hold in the model of the dog's um, mouth in, 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 their, in their hands and looking at the severe um, periodontal disease and the gingivitis and, and then realising that, hey, my dog's mouth is looking like that and it shouldn't be like that. So I think that helps as well. And I'll often then suggest that we consider taking um, bloods at that stage as well, especially if it's an older patient, which a lot of these are, um, to do a bit of a pre-anesthetic blood screen um, during that initial consultation. So then I'll say to them, you know, give us a call back tomorrow and, and we'll or book it, book your 
dog in and um, if the bloods are okay then we'll go ahead with the dental um, thereafter so um, yeah so that's sort of my process with it Mark and I will try and remember that third um, thing I <laughs> mentioned to the clients in a sec um, so anything more you've got to say about um, getting the mes- message across to the clients to book in that procedure there is, there is one very very important thing I wanted to say Brendan and um, well, I suppose two now on a roll. I just wanted to pat you on the back for using those models. I reckon that anything that we can do that stimulates the different parts of our clients' minds um, to perceive the problem increases the likelihood of them understanding it. And I think a big part of our role as communicators is to look for those alternate ways to present information. And you're exactly right. You show people those models and they almost invariably pick them up and roll them around in their hands and poke little bits of them to see what they feel like. And um, and I've got no doubt that improves the quality of the message and the understanding of the problem when we're trying to talk to them about it. I was also going to mention um, that uh, we talked about off-air um, some of the issues that might uh, might arise in these sorts of cases, and um, and one of the things that uh, that um, is a, reg- a regular thing at, um, at the New South Wales Veterinary Practitioners Board, um, and has been written about in the board's um, uh, newsletter a number of times, is communication about dental disease. Um, so, giving people excellent communication and excellent expectation, but also um, getting to you know. Many of these dogs' extractions are going to be part of the solution to the problem. Um, and it's a very common point at which people um, seem to get significantly confused. They um, you know, uh, thought the teeth were going to be cleaned and, uh, and they didn't realise that teeth were coming out. They didn't realise how many teeth were coming out. An estimate was given for two or three and there were 11 or 12 that came out. Um, and so I think... I would encourage everyone who um, books those cases in to be as uh, um, to practice as excellent communication and paint as um, as significant a picture of the difficulty of the work that's being undertaken to emphasise that those teeth only come out in situations where they're causing pain, um, but also to emphasise that you can't always predict before you go in there how many are going to have to come out and. Uh, and you will need permission to get those teeth out um, before yes. the event. And I think it, yes, and I think it's exactly that, and that you try and pre-warn them about that. And ideally, also having that that contact number. And we always try and make sure we've got have a contact number that um, when the animal's anaesthetised, if something goes wrong or, or we need to do a further procedure like extract more teeth, that we then we'll have one of the nurses try and phone the client and say, hey, look, we said it was only going to be a scale and a polish and a, and a general checkup and a, and um, with your dog, but it looks like we do have to extract two teeth on your dog and these are the two teeth that need to come out because of X and Y and um, it will um, mean that it will be an extra cost if we haven't already factored that into the to the estimate that we've given to the client. The only disadvantage of doing that, Mark, is that it's amazing how many people um, that you really stress to them when they're being booked in or they're at the dropping their dog off or any animal for that matter at, at the reception um, and, and the nurse reception nurse will say to them please give me a contact number we can contact you during the day and they will give a number out and it's amazing how many people you try and phone that number and it just goes to voice voicemail um, or or that they don't phone i was talking to a um one of my um, colleagues who i started when i was a new graduate i started with and and we were saying that i reckon it was easier to call people when they didn't have mobiles you were more likely to get them to pick up the phone um when they had to wait at home and worried about the animal now the mobile phone i don't know they've got it with them all the time but like you you said um it's more likely than not that they won't answer at the critical moment um, and I suppose we've got to be prepared if we haven't indicated that we're going to take teeth out or we haven't indicated the large number um, that um, we've got to be prepared to wake that animal up and say to the people, we were in the process, we tried to call you and um, there's more work that needs to be done, but we couldn't get your permission to do it at that, at that time. 
Yes, and if if you're lucky enough to have a regular client who 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 knows you well and you know them well, then then obviously with some of those you you can you'll know that you can go ahead and they'll trust you to 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 do the right thing. And if we need to extract a teeth that we haven't haven't uh, mentioned to them and and we couldn't get in contact with them, that that it's less likely to be an issue. Um, and I think it's always important to sort of um, um, make sure that when you're doing estimates that you do also factor a little bit of that into the estimate and have on your client consent form that um, some sort of statement that mentions that you may have to do a procedure that's in the best interest of the dog or the animal at the time that um, if we can't get in touch with you that um, we'll, we'll make it a clinical judgment that um, we will do that particular procedure with them. So it's trying to cover all bases, but also doing the right thing by the animal, isn't it, um, with them? But yeah, um, there, there may be occasion when you need to wake that animal up because you can't get in touch with them for that dental and you needed to take out virtually all the teeth in the mouth and you told them it was just going to be a scale and a polish. So yeah, you'd want to have a chat to them at least on the phone directly, if not face-to-face before you go ahead and do that if they um, did not think that you were going to remove any any teeth in the mouth of that that dog yeah so i think we'll jump to some of the the actual um, dental treatment and we might we might jump around a little bit here mark because i think um, um, we should just talk about things off the top of our head i suppose and 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 isn't that um, what we've been doing all the um, time yeah, for for well, probably just for the last twenty eight um, podcasts. So yeah, um, about um, some of the tips and tra- techniques and frustrations of doing um, dentals in dogs, Mark. And um, um, I, I, I think I don't know. I mean, I, um, I think what we do is pretty standard. We try and make sure that we've got plenty of um, we we have our little heat max under the animal because obviously when we're when we're cleaning those teeth and flushing out and and, and using our our um, scalers, we're, we're flushing with the with the water there, and there's a fair bit of water flow off there, so the animal's head may be getting a bit wet. Um, we use those little pads, um, almost like um, um, absorbent pads, Mark, um, to try and um, mop up all that gunge and the, and the, the um, flush that you are um, flushing out of the, the mouth of that animal. We tend to have the... Um, surgical table um, angled down slightly towards the head, so we get in the um, the um, any liquid um, flushing out of the mouth and not down the back of the throat. There, I always put a few swabs at the back of the throat, um, gauze swabs, um, when I'm doing the procedure. And usually, my nurse reminds me to remove those gauze swabs before we um, wake up that particular dog um, from the um, anaesthetic. Once again, this is an idea that I can't take credit for, but. Um, has worked out to be very good for us because you do worry about um, those swabs may, may, you know, you've got to get the right number of them out. Um, uh, we've actually started using tampons, Brendan. We um, loop the string of the tampon around the, the, uh, um, the, in, the, the tube for inflating the, the endotracheal tube. Um, and so um, there's a constant reminder that it has to come out at or about the time remove the ET tube um, and because it uh, you know obviously swells with the fluid um, it does prevent um, uh, extra stuff going down the back of the throat and causing complications so we found that to be a useful um, Oh, that's excellent. I've heard that before, and I, it's something that I have been meaning to try. So I will have to try it. Um, are there, is there any particular brand or type of tampon that you prefer? And the second question relating to that that I'd have is, um, does it last the whole dental procedure because they are pretty absorbent, obviously? Um, or do you need to change it? I suppose it depends on how how prolonged the dental is. Um, well, we have. I think the. the this is the way I um, imagine that it works. It absorbs fluid till um, it's fully engorged, but then once it's um, once the tampon is uh, full of fluid and can't absorb anymore, it sort of blocks off the you know it molds to the remnant shape of the, the throat and blocks it off. So even when it's not absorbing anymore, it's preventing any flow from going down that way. Um, we just use um, yes. Uh, um, no frills brand. Um, they work completely well. They're relatively inexpensive, though. Obviously, they would be much better if they didn't have a GST attached. Um, but um, yeah, they, they're a, um, 
nice and simple way to uh, make, ensure that you don't leave any um, swabs in the throat. Excellent. I'm going out to buy some tampons tomorrow, Mark. Um, so hopefully I won't get any silly looks or, or, or queries at the um, supermarket or the chemist when I go out and grab them tomorrow. Um, one frustrating thing I have with these dentals, I'm jumping around here, is this the polishing of the teeth, Mark. Um, and I... I'm not convinced that the polishing that I do on the teeth after we've scaled them and I um, um, ultrasonically scale them, that the polishing is having much effect on sort of grinding down those microscopic or even macroscopic rough edges that we have after after scaling or even before scaling. And that's, um, I'm using the, which is a fantastic dental unit, the um, IM3 um, dental unit. And I think a lot of clinics use the IM3 and I expect that you have an IM3 unit in there. And yeah, and they're, they're, they're little... Um, their little um, polisher there um, just rotates backwards and forwards, doesn't it, um, left and right or clockwise and anti-clockwise. And supposedly um, they developed that one so it doesn't cause much splatter, um, which the traditional um, polish cup that you use on the, on the traditional um, polishers just go around in clockwise or, or counterclockwise direction um, continuously. Um, but... I, I just don't think they polish that well. Those those particular um, cups with 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 their polish. Um, have you got any thoughts on that, Mark, or is it just my technique? Well, maybe I think um, I've had the same misgivings as you, and I pay particular attention now when I um, uh, go to my own dentist, and um, and, and I'm going to be that uh, horrible veterinarian who announces that um, yes, I'm a vet and I look after the teeth of animals. So tell me what you're doing to my teeth. So I know to whether to apply that to animals or not. But I have paid particular attention to how a wonderful hygienist um, does polish my teeth after I've had some dental work done. And um, and I think the key, the, the device they use is actually very similar to the IM3 device. I don't think it's that dramatically different. Um, and I think the key thing for me is the amount of time that they do spend uh, polishing that um, in... I suppose before I paid more attention to this, I was relatively uh, brusque with the, the device and, and just gave the mouth a quick going over. But I think the maximal benefit is achieved if you do spend a little bit of time focusing on each of the surfaces and uh, making sure you've got the the um, uh, dentrifice, the, the uh, toothpaste-like material attached to the, the um, refreshing it regularly, the cup, at the end, and uh, and I think it. I think I, I like you. I worry that it may not be making um, a significant difference, and I always worry when we have those cases that come back, you know, twelve weeks later, and they're already starting to develop calculus. That um, have I not polished this well enough that the bacteria can find still find grooves and start the whole process off again? Um, but I think the key thing is just being thorough and taking some time. Um, and I know that adds to the length of the anaesthetic, but uh, if you're going to do it, you've got to do it properly and take that bit of time. Yes. Um, I must admit I don't have any other sort of polish polish um, um, instrument um, at my clinic that I can compare it with. Um, but um, I just, I don't know, it's just, just a feel that it doesn't, doesn't um, do the job as well as potentially it, it should or could do. But as I say, it may be that, yeah, I'm not spending enough time, um, as, you, as you sort of mentioned, um, polishing them um, for a bit longer might be the way to do it with them. Yeah, so that's that was one of my thoughts with um, the actual techniques of doing it. And the other thing that um, I don't know whether you've got any tips um, with it, Mark, is um, do, do you just use those normal absorbent pads um, underneath the head of the, the dog to help try and mop up all the Indeed, we do. Gunge, the, the, um, our nurses, our support staff, call them blueies because they've got a little plastic blue edge on them. Yes. And, uh, and we buy them in bulk and, um, and use them for a number of procedures like that, but particularly for dentals. Um, we probably um, are more inclined to use some sort of towel or... Um, or uh, uh, some sort of, um, um, you know, one of those foam blocks to raise the, 
the area of the pharynx so we can keep the body level but still get that same drainage you were talking about. Um, and yes, um, uh, underneath the, over the top of the, the foam block or towel, we'll place a couple of blueies. And we, that is something that we find that we have to change on a regular basis through the procedure. Um, and, uh, but we do enjoy that it draws away some of that moisture and, and lessens the, the, um, the gunge that builds up around the, the whole procedure. And, and, uh, hopefully we're able to maintain body temperature because the animal's not nearly as wet. Yeah, we use the same same pads, and I think the the ones we've been using for the last year or so are pink rather than blue. Although I still tend to call them the blueies as well. Mark. So yes, well let's we've almost well we're just over the one hour, so we might we might just quickly in the next two to five minutes go on to our last little section of this um, topic, and that's prevention, Mark. You know what works, what doesn't work. What do you recommend to to your clients to um, give or, or, or have their dogs chew on to try and prevent that um, dental disease um, flaring up. I mean, my, my comments would be, um, yes, I do uh, I do fairly frequently recommend the dental diets and I do think they have a job to play with them, but um, I, I expect that number one by far is still brushing the teeth and, and you need to pick your client and pick the dog as far as which ones will be able to cope with that particular procedure there. And I usually go softly with that and tell clients that, yeah, if you are going to attempt to brush the teeth of your dog or any animal for that um, matter, is is don't think that you need to brush for, you know, a, a minute on all four quadrants of the mouth. Just just start off with putting a little bit of um, the 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 um, paste inside um, the mouth on each side just underneath the gums and that's all you do for the first few days. And then you might use your finger on a handkerchief or, or a cloth and a bit of an abrasive action and, and get the animal used to you rubbing your finger along there. You can use those little dental um, thimbles that come with the starter kits um, they work quite um, well as well and then they slowly build up from there but um, do you have any tips about what sort of what sort of chew items do you recommend they feed dogs Mark? Do well I've got um, a my little spiel about um, what helps and what doesn't help is that um, I think there are extrinsic factors factors outside the dog the things they chew and um, and uh, the way they use their mouth. And then there's intrinsic factors, the flow of saliva, how rich the saliva is in antibacterial agents and uh, how good that those agents are at preventing infection. And those intrinsic factors are very, very difficult to, um, to manage. They're going to be part of the dog and not change. And so um, there are some dogs where those intrinsic factors are the main problem, and so it doesn't matter how much you try to manage what they chew, um, they're still going to require a dental procedure each couple of years or whatever. Um, and look, I think um, we do definitely avoid uh, recommending bones. I know it's uh, a uh, um, there's lots of dogs who do chew on bones, and, and I think it's more chewing the ligaments and tendons off the bone um, that does the good rather than the crunching of the bone because the, those... Uh, flexible bits of tissue are more likely to floss the gingival margin where the problem begins, then I don't think the actual, you know, the abrasive action of crunching the bone does anything but wear away stuff at the tip of the bone and make it a little bit more likely, uh, tip of the tooth and make it a little bit more likely there's going to be um, problems, you know, with slab fractures and whatnot. So we avoid bones um, and there's a number of commercial um, products, particularly the one Greenies, we'll I'll frequently um, use those. Um, but there's a group of them that I think need to be individually tailored to the pet. There's some pets that um, will take to some and not to others. And so I think it's good to have two or three in the bank that you can use to um, for each individual animal so that they, you know, the clients are not uh, necessarily um, giving up after the first thing you offer them doesn't work. Yeah, I and I agree. I don't think there's one particular product as far as the chew chew items or chew toys um, that that's that's 
better than all the others and I think it's horses for courses or, 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 or chew toys for dogs and that some dogs will chew some and won't touch the others. They don't like some of them or they may chew on another one where they where they just chomp on it and, and swallow it down. Um, so it's really just, just, just mentioning a, a selection of these sort of items and, and seeing which one that potentially that dog will chew on. And and some of them won't chew on any of them, no matter what you do, I think. so. Um, and they're the ones you're going to get back even more regularly for a dental. Um, I, um, one other thing I'd like you to comment on before we finish up, Mark, is the, is the product you put in water, you know, so that supposed dental um, um, preventatives, um, those, um, some of them are flavoured, some aren't, and, and um, the chemicals that are in there that, that you add add a little bit of the, the mixture to the dog's water bowl and um, it might freshen their breath as well as potentially help in um, prevent uh, dental disease. Do you do you recommend them, Mark? And, um, well, I think so, it's the same as help. we were saying before. It's uh, um, uh, horses for courses. There are dogs that, um, that uh, the clients desperately want to do something. They're unable to get a toothbrush into the dog's mouth um, and... Uh, and, as, and if the dog won't chew something and they can't clean the teeth, then they do feel at least they're doing something. And and I suppose when we've cleaned the teeth, that is one of the things that will, because I think those um, antiseptic uh, antiseptics that go into the water, they prevent um, that initial stage. I think once you've got a mouthful of calculus and tartar and bacteria, they're, they're just overwhelmed and they can't do anything but at that early stage i think there probably is um, some preventative effect from those antiseptics and in those circumstances we have used them and uh and i and i think they um they do make a difference in that small window of time when the mouth is clean yes yes so there's no magic solution, is there, Mark, with um, the preventative um, aspects with these? And as as you mentioned, there's certain breeds, in particular those intrinsic factors, as you like to put it, that mean that we have to do them dental on them regularly, which includes my two, I was going to say two little, but my two big greyhounds um, lying fast asleep just um, near me again because I... They usually fall off to sleep within five minutes of me starting the podcast, which I'm sure a few of our listeners do as well, um, Mark. So I'm regularly cleaning their teeth. Um, so I did Jez's teeth about um, a month or two ago and um, Patch, my other dog, needs her teeth cleaned again soon. And um, hopefully she's not listening, not yet. She's um, fast asleep. I can see her from here. So, yes, yeah, so there we go. So dog, dental disease in dogs. And we've gone over time um, again, Mark. So now don't forget, Mark has put a limit on the competition. If you want to win a signed copy of the textbook please send in an email you have one week left to do it and we will be drawing or mark will be drawing the winner out of a hat next week and we will be announcing it on our show and i think it's a week after mark isn't it that we will be off to the australian veterinary association annual conference which which is in brisbane in queensland and Mark and I plan to have a couple of exciting interviews there, don't we, Mark? We're going to be roving reporters around the um, conference trade floor and um, we'll be ambushing people, I think, um, and getting some interviews there. So I think that's going to be an interesting podcast, that one. We'll have to just market it as a special, I think, um, just a trade special podcast and um, something to look forward to in a couple of couple of podcasts. So I think the outro guy's about to come in, Mark. So um, thanks for listening, everybody, and we will see you or listen to you or hear from you or you'll hear from us next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.